This morning we read from Holy Scripture, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Ye did run well, who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would they were even cut off which trouble you. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, 
joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. <clears throat> and this morning we consider the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 44. What doth the Tenth Commandment require of us? that even the smallest inclination or thought contrary to any of God's commandments never rise in our hearts, but that at all times we hate all sin with our whole heart and delight in all righteousness. But can those who are converted to God perfectly keep these commandments? No. But even the holiest men, while in this life, have only a small beginning of this obedience. Yet so, that with a sincere resolution they begin to live not only according to some, but all the commandments of God. Why will God then have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached, since no man in this life can keep them? First, that all our lifetime we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature, and thus become the more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness in Christ. Likewise, that we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God, till we arrive at the perfection proposed to us in a life to come. <clears throat> Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord's Day that we consider, this concluding Lord's Day of the Heidelberg Catechism's treatment of the Ten Commandments is a very busy Lord's Day. It contains much truth. It is very important and significant for all that it contains many of the things the Catechism has treated already, and it simply confirms what's taught, and it really is impossible for us to enter into all of them. Consider, for example, that the Catechism here makes clear that the subject matter has to do with becoming more and more conformable to the image of God. Bring that up because the subject of the image of God is something that was brought up quite earlier in the first part of the Catechism in our original creation, which image we lost. And we see now that the subject matter here has something to do with the restoration of that image. The subject matter is somewhat complex in that it also returns to an overall 
subject of the law of God, something that the Catechism did already, speaking about the place of the law of God and its preaching when it introduced its explanation of the Ten Commandments. And you will notice, too, that the Lord's Day speaks about us in relationship to the law of God. And, in fact, that's what we're going to focus on this morning, a treat and try to focus upon not simply the law itself and what's being explained here, but the relationship of that law to the Christian life. That really is what's being talked about here. It's dealing with a number of matters and clarifying some things that could easily be misunderstood with regard to our Christian life. By Christian life, I mean the life of one who has been already regenerated by the Spirit of Jesus Christ and thus united to Him by faith and believes in Him for their deliverance and their salvation. Believes not only they are justified by Christ, but sanctified by Him. Consider with me this morning, then, this subject, the law and Christian life. The law and Christian life. And we look, in the first place, at that law preached. The Catechism says that the law of God, according to Holy Scripture, even God Himself, is that it be strictly preached. This isn't my opinion or even the opinion of the Reformed faith in its creed, not even the opinion of the apostles, perhaps even only some of the apostles. But this is the commandment of God. Interesting that when we consider the subject of the law, what God commands and what God forbids, we consider a command of God to strictly preach the Ten Commandments. That's the question. Why will God then have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached? That itself is worthy of our notice and obviously has something to do with the Christian life because preaching assumes that this is something done by the Christian church itself, that this is to be done by a preacher who is himself a Christian and lives the Christian life and called by a Christian church filled with Christian members and who call him in order to do this work. I doubt it perhaps crossed your mind when you called your preacher or the preacher when he answered the call specifically 
that he was being called in part to strictly preach the commandments of God. So obviously this has something to do with our Christian life. You cannot have a Christian life in a Christian church and have preached and hear the preaching of the preacher without hearing the commandments of God strictly preached. This makes clear, beloved, that whatever God meant, whatever the Holy Spirit meant in Galatians 5, verse 18 that we read, which was this, that ye are not under the law. God said that. Ye, you, you Christians. And the preacher who preaches to you Christians must preach. You are not under the law. And the same Holy Spirit says something very similar in Romans chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. Look once at verse 4 and then at verse 6. And there the same God says that we are dead to the law. We are dead to the law and we are delivered from the law. So God says we are not under the law. We are dead to the law and that we are delivered from the law. But now the Catechism says the same God and Holy Spirit says that law will be strictly preached. That makes clear that whatever God meant by those statements in Holy Scripture, He did not mean that the commandments are not to be preached or even preached strictly. And by implication, God did not mean that they are not to be strictly observed, heard, understood, or enforced in the church. Whatever God meant in those very important passages, He did not mean, do not preach my law strictly. And do not listen to that law. Don't heed that law. It really doesn't matter to me. You are at liberty. You are free. I bring that out because that attitude is basic to what we call antinomianism. And antinomianism in all its forms may be summarized simply as this. It objects. It objects to the strict preaching of the law. And it objects especially to one word. Must. They object to saying the law must be preached. That the law must be heard. And that the law must be obeyed. And the law must be kept. And the law must be enforced. They object to that. They object to the teaching found in Lord's Day 32 that we must do good works. They object to that same teaching in Lord's Day 32 that says a man cannot be saved. He cannot be saved who lives a wicked and ungrateful life. 
Some even object to any must, including the call of the gospel that you must believe. All such musts, they say, imply Arminianism, imply that you are being saved by that keeping of the law, that to preach that must means that you're doing and you're keeping and you're enforcing is that which saves you or obtains salvation. They claim that because only the gospel has the power to save, and that too is the reformed faith, the law in and of itself cannot save. The law by itself cannot therefore sanctify or convert that either one should not preach the law or whenever it is preached then it must not be preached strictly. In fact, some even go so far and if you think this is foreign, I first heard this in the Protestant Reformed churches that such is the freedom of the child of God under the gospel that when God has the commandment strictly preached, and they, must, they would admit that this must be done because it's in the catechism, that faith responds with no. Oh yes, they say, preach the law. Preach the must. We don't really object to that. But there is. Because they teach that faith response is no. No, I mustn't. No, I don't have to. And the excuse for that is passages such as Galatians 5. What's the difference, they say, between those who said you must be circumcised? How does that square what you're saying? with what the Apostle says, that we're not under the law. We've been freed from the law. No, if there's a must, then faith responds, no, we must not. In fact, even go so far as to say, now I don't believe. All of that contradicts the confessions. All of that contradicts the Word of God itself and what is taught elsewhere in the Confessions. It's not my purpose to enter into all the arguments there. Only to say this, whatever that is meant, whatever is taught, God's will is that His law be strictly preached. We'll point out also that it is the will of God that the response to that law be, yes, Lord, speak, for thy servant heareth. When the commandment, when the Lord's Day makes that statement, it's also clear that the law, however, is not the only thing or even the main thing that is preached. Sometimes 
That's how that word strictly is taken. It's taken to mean this, that the law of God is the main thing, or perhaps even the exclusive thing that must be heard in the church. This too is a false notion that we can easily fall into. We rightly object to an antinomian spirit that's squeamish about the word must or by talking about necessary. We can fall into this ditch by imagining to ourselves that the main thing, if not the only thing that we need to hear is about our faults and weaknesses and the things that must be done to correct them. This notion often reveals itself when it comes time to counsel someone with regard to some illicit behavior according to the law of God. A member is living in the sin of drunkenness or young people are indulging in drugs and alcohol when there is fornication going on among the high school students or there is theft or there is slander and gossip and backbiting and there is an imagining that what's needed is a good old bout of the strict preaching of the law and if that is done it will correct the behavior that's not true certainly bad behavior must be condemned and by strictly preached it means that sin a contrary actions and behavior contrary to the law of God must be condemned and this is a this is a step that's often forgotten there is counseling going on by counselors or counseling going on by family members or counseling going on by the elders with regard to bad behavior and we immediately jump to the things that somebody ought to be doing. You need to correct this and you need to look along these steps and you need this help. And the entire step of condemning the bad behavior was overlooked. No one looks squarely in the eye of the individual and says, God damns that behavior. God condemns it. God does not tolerate it. And the individual that lives in that sin cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Very crucial step that's included in strict preaching of the law. What God forbids and what God says we may not do or even that which we must do in strict preaching of the law must be set forth so that there is no mistake about what the will of God is and that when we walk in such a way we walk contrary to the will of God the opposite of the will of God and point out the implications of that it's not simply a matter that God pronounces a judgment on certain behavior and says I damn that to hell that's worthy of eternal damnation, but what that is, that one who engages in that behavior is not fellowshipping with God, not walking with Him or talking with Him, 
but walking and talking the exact opposite, going as they are in an entirely different direction. And yes, corrective behavior must be laid out. But as the scriptures make clear, this must be done. This is included in the strict preaching of the law. And by the way, understand this, that what is set forth in this Lord's Day is basically the same thing that was done in the Old Testament also. Let's not imagine here that there's an entirely new and different way set forth for the Christian in the old and the Christian in the new. The approach was somewhat different because Christ had not come. The gospel had not been fulfilled in him, in reality, in time. And so you found the prophets, the same prophets that pronounced wonderful and wonderful pronouncements about Jesus Christ, preaching the law of God strictly. And so God's word comes today and says it's really no different. But we make a mistake if that's all or mainly the focus. And you will find that verified in the prophets also. That the law must be strictly preached is brought out by the very fact that this is all brought out in connection with the Tenth Commandment. And when you first read that, you say to yourself, well, our fathers are done with the Tenth Commandment pretty quickly and they're getting into the law as such. Not really. You have to understand how they view the Tenth Commandment. In other words, to phrase the statement a little differently or explain it, what we're saying is this. When our fathers say that God requires that His law be strictly preached in the congregation to His people, what He means is preach the Ten Commandments. Preach all the commandments in light of the Tenth Commandment. Preach it to that degree. The original word is sharply. And if you want to know what that really is getting at, then we look at the Tenth Commandment and notice what it states. What's the Tenth Commandment require? That even the smallest inclination or thought contrary to any of God's commandments never rise in our hearts. But that all times we hate all sin with our whole heart and delight in all righteousness. This is something that the Bible confirms in a number of places. You can look it up. Paul speaks about it in Romans 7. But whenever we imagine to ourselves our own, our own life in light of the law of God, then that which should humble us, that which would bring us to the truth we're going to talk about real soon, is the Tenth Commandment. Because the Tenth Commandment makes clear, number one, that all of the commandments, even though they speak about outward deeds, have to do with the heart, the inward. All outward deeds flow from the heart, and the heart needs to be addressed. 
The Tenth Commandment also makes clear that at the heart of all disobedience to all the commandments is covetousness. If you ask why would a man have another God than Jehovah God, and why would he bow down and serve idols? Why would people serve the God money and the God entertainment and the God pleasure? Why? And the answer is covetousness. Covetousness. Why would an individual not want to honor the Sabbath day in public worship? Covetousness. Why would a man murder and steal and commit adultery? And why even lie and slander against his neighbor? Answer, covetousness. Covetousness is the problem. And, and so you could define strict preaching of the law simply in those terms. It's preaching that addresses the root problem, covetousness, and the greed and the pride, the heart, that addresses the real problem, which is the heart of man. That that covetousness is a form of hatred, and hatred against God and against the neighbor. And it's involved in all the commandments. No one, this is what Paul learned, no one can say he keeps the commandments. Not even close. And about the time we think we can keep the commandments, or even one commandment, or two commandments, then what we really need to examine is the heart. And if we find any covetousness there, we've sinned. And it's put even in terms of inclinations, even the inclination, even the thought, I wished, I desire, I want. I will. And let's understand, too, that it's even to want and desire the thing itself. That's how desperately wicked our hearts are. That so much covetousness we brush away and we minimize by saying, well, the thing itself is okay. That's why the Apostle in Galatians 5, this wonderful, wonderful defense against legalism and the notion that we're saved or justified by our works. He has to turn around and issue that warning. You're free. Only don't use your liberty, your freedom as a cloak of maliciousness to cover up evil residing in the heart, to put a lid on the covetousness and the desires and the lasciviousness that's really there. You want that not because you need it, but just because you want it and you don't have it. That's covetousness. And the Heidelberg Catechism makes clear that God wants that preached in his congregation. Doesn't mean we make new commandments, only 10, don't need 11, 12, 13, 14, and all kinds of variations. Stick with the 10 and don't forget the 10th. With regard to all of them, that's God's will. And that is what you may ask yourself, have we heard? Has that been preached to us? And that's the will of God. Now, the second thing we want to look at is that this is a law that's obeyed. Don't overlook that. Don't overlook that. The Catechism states 
plainly, as plainly as it can be said, that not only does God want and will that His law be strictly preached, but God expects it is the will of God, and there will be and is real obedience to that law in the Christian life, in the Christian church. It is false to say there is none. It is against God's Word. It is against the Apostle. It is against the creeds to state that the child of God, even the regenerated child of God, cannot love God. That's not true. That's false. And that has been stated by that same antinomian spirit. That this is the case is brought out by the question, which isn't, do the children of God keep the commandments? That's assumed. Not only that, but it says so. There is obedience. It speaks about the children of God being holy and that they have obedience. What they want to make clear, however, is that there will be no form of perfectionism in this life. We cannot claim, nor should we look for and expect any kind of perfect obedience. That's an impossibility. Now when we look at this Lord's Day, a couple of things that we should point out and we want to point out, which is this. The Christian life is a holy life. There's no such thing as a Christian life that's not a holy life. A Christian may claim to be righteous, because that's part of the image of God that's restored, right? Righteousness. And what is righteousness? Righteousness is a state of perfection according to the standard of God. We receive that in justification. God imputes to us the righteousness of Christ, so we stand before Him as if we have no sin at all. But part of the image of God is also holiness. And the Catechism makes clear that the Christian life is a holy life. There's no such thing as an unholy Christian life. And that belongs to the must. It belongs to the must of the law. It belongs to the must of why God wants His law strictly preached. It's pointing that out. Now the question is, why? Why? Is it because a Christian begins to live obediently and then God says to him, well, that's good enough for me? Is it because we're saving ourselves by that obedience? No, absolutely not. That cannot be. In fact, if that's our attitude and that's our thought, then Paul's pronouncement as it came upon the Jew, if you be circumcised, then Christ avails you nothing, nothing at all, because you're trusting in that circumcision to be a Jew. Today we'd say to be a Christian. We don't become Christians by obedience to the law. We can't. It's impossible. But make no mistake, the Christian is an obedient individual. Why is that? Well, it has to do with how we become a Christian. Not only is it out of and flows out of election, predestination, God's eternal will for us, the will to save us, the will to save us in Jesus Christ, which will also includes the obedience. 
We are chosen unto good works, the Scriptures make clear. But let's look at how God brings that about as a reality. That begins with the implanting of God's Spirit, the resurrection Spirit of Christ. That's implanted. We call that regeneration. By that regeneration, we are joined to Christ by faith, a true and living faith. But now let's look at that Spirit. That Spirit is a Holy Spirit. The life of that Spirit is a holy life. Therefore, when that Spirit is implanted, He brings not just life, the life of salvation, but a holy life. Furthermore, the explanation is that a holy life is one that's dedicated to God, that's consecrated to God. To put it another way, a holy life is a life that loves God. And also, because that life is the life of God Himself that's brought by the Spirit to us, a life that loves the neighbor as God loves the neighbor. A life then that loves God and the neighbor. This is precisely what Paul was talking about. You see? Do you recognize all these things when you put them together? Can you have a spirit that is holy? And can you have a spirit that is holy that does not love God or the neighbor? Can you have a spirit that is the fellowship of God Himself within Himself given to us that does not in turn fellowship with God? Answer, no, it's impossible. That's what we must come to see and understand. That's what Paul was getting at. You can put it all together real quickly. Think about the Spirit of Christ and who Christ was and what He did. It was His Spirit. It's His Spirit that we receive in regeneration. Was that Spirit antinomian? Was that a Spirit when God the Father came to God the Son and said, Son, Son, this is what you must do. He said, oh no. Oh no, don't be telling me what to do. In fact, there was a person that had the right, you might say foolishly as a person, to say, no, I must not. It would be one who's equal with the Father, would it not? Or Jesus in his human nature, which was perfect. No, his spirit was one that loved God and loved the neighbor and loved the will of God, delighted in the will of God. And the point of the Apostle is, now, if you have that Spirit, walk by that Spirit. Now, obviously, if you have that Spirit, you're not walking by that Spirit in order to obtain the Spirit. You already have the Spirit. You don't walk by that Spirit, and according to that Spirit, in order to somehow improve the reception of that spirit. That's not how it works. But at the same time, it's impossible to have the Spirit of Jesus Christ that regenerated us without that Spirit having its effect, making us holy. And that holiness would be love for God and the neighbor. It would be fellowship with God, walking with God, and talking with God. And what does that have to do with the law? The law sets forth what that looks like. 
The law sets forth what that consists of. What does it mean to love God and the neighbor? The law says, here it is. This is what it means. When we ask ourselves, what is the spirit of Christ's will? What does it want? What does it desire? The law of God says this right here. I hope that makes sense. I hope that's plain to you. How can we claim to be justified by faith? How can we claim to be regenerated? How can we claim to be a Christian? Which means you claim that I have the Spirit of Christ without walking by that Spirit. And the Apostle makes plain in Galatians 5, well then you will have these fruits. And notice what the fruits are. Faith. But not just faith, but love. In fact, this is the passage where Christ says that faith and love are inseparable because faith works by love. Notice that, faith works by love. The last point we want to make and that should follow is that the child of God then doesn't hate the law. He doesn't promote hate of the law. He's not suspicious of the law. Oh, he's aware that it can be misused and abused. But he loves the law. He loves that law exactly because he's been redeemed and saved through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, I hope it was clear that it's the will of God that the law of God never be preached alone. Oh, strictly preached, but never alone. The law may never come to us apart from the gospel. In fact, that's implied here. And when we talk about loving the law, we're not talking about loving the law as it stands all by itself. No, anyone, when they look at the law in and of itself, by itself, will discover, number one, that law is powerless to do anything. It doesn't have any power to save, any power to change. Not by itself. But now that law of God, when it's received through Jesus Christ, the law of God is it's found through the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. That love can only come to us through the gospel and in the gospel. And then, and then there's an amazing purpose for it, a connection. When we sing in Psalm 119 or other psalms our love for the law of God, the Old Testament saints weren't speaking out of the other side of their mouth. They weren't speaking as legalists there. They weren't speaking as unbelievers and unregenerate. They were speaking as Christians. Notice this. Why will God have His commandments preached? Why do we love the law? We love the law in part exactly for these reasons. First, that all our lifetime we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature. That's the will of God. You think you know your sinful nature? You don't know it enough. Preach the law of God so that you know your sinful nature more and more and more and more. And about the time you think you know it, let's preach it some more. We need to know our sinful nature. Instead of blindly going through life saying, well, I'm saved, I'm fine, everything's good. No, we need to know our depravity. Why? So that we become the more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness in Christ. You are earnest about seeking the remission of sin and righteousness in Christ? Good. Good. It's the way it should be for a Christian. But there's always more. We should be more earnest. We should go to Christ and seek the remission of sins and righteousness even more. doesn't mean 
that what we had was faulty or wrong, or that going to him somehow makes us more righteous and gives us more remission, obtains that. No, that's not the idea. The idea is that that's how we live consciously before him. And when we're not doing that, then we're relying upon ourselves. And it's by knowing our sinful natures that we're moved to do that. Notice how the gospel has to come then for that to happen. The law don't point out where to go for remission of sins and righteousness. The law only says to be righteous, you have to keep all this. If that's the way you're going to obtain your righteousness, you've got to keep it all, all of it. Maybe no covetousness, none whatsoever. And if there is, you bear it, you own it, you pay for it. But the gospel comes along and says, no, there's redemption and righteousness in Christ. Ah, that changes everything, does it not? Now when the law comes and says, you sinner, I don't say, well, let me see how I can make that up. I don't say, wow, you know, not as bad as the next guy. But I go to Christ, say, forgive that too. There's more. Likewise, that we constantly endeavor, endeavor, strive, labor, work, and pray to God. And the idea is there aren't two different things there. Endeavor and pray, work and pray, but work to pray. Work by praying. Work at praying. Right here is where I got to remind you what praying is. You see, keeping the law of God is walking with God. When the Bible says Enoch walked with God, it's telling us he lived, he lived with God according to his commandments. He loved God. He loved God in his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And when we read that the saints talked with God, it means they prayed. So it means endeavor to talk to God, pray to God, and then specifically for this, notice, notice all this serves a purpose. Prayer, but not just any prayers and prayers for anything, which is, again, we can compare to our prayers and why this is going to lead to an explanation of prayer. Notice how it leads right into that. We have all sorts of thoughts about what prayer is and what prayer accomplishes and its purposes and end and goal. Here's just limited to one for the grace of the Holy Spirit. You say, I've prayed for the grace of the Holy Spirit, and I have the grace of the Holy Spirit. Fine. It's God's will you pray more. Pray more. If the law is strictly preached, that'll happen. That'll be your response. Pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, and then, and then for just any reason? No so that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God. Notice that. We become more conformable to the image of God. Do we accomplish that? No, the Holy Spirit does. That's why you're praying for the grace of the Holy Spirit. It's a child of God who lives by faith and says, I can't do that. I've tried. I've tried to keep God's commandments. I've tried to keep His law. I've discovered I can't. But when I have the grace of the Holy Spirit, then indeed I can. I become more and more conformable to the image of God. I look like Him. I act like Him. I walk with Him. And notice, again, it's in the context of why will God have His law strictly preached. The idea is even this. You separate that gospel from that law, you don't have that. In order to even preach a gospel, a 
of complete and absolute free forgiveness of sins by the grace of God, there has to be a law that says, and this is your sin, this is your misery, this is what you need to be delivered from more and more. And then again, following on that which we learned earlier, God will have his law strictly preached in such a way that it's absolutely clear we have only a small beginning of the new obedience. No, that may be a use, used as an excuse to sin. That's done. Man wants to live a life of absolute vile wickedness in the church. He abuses little children. Or he lives a life of drunkenness. Or he has mistresses all over the place. It happens. Man comes to church every Sunday, partakes of the Lord's table, hides it from everybody. And if you look in the heart, that man would probably know this passage better than he. Well, we only have a small beginning of the new obedience. That's a man who's using that as an excuse to sin. That may happen. That man's unconverted and unregenerated if that's his thoughts and that's his wickedness. But there is a small beginning, but only a small one. Because God uses all this too, to, as it's put elsewhere, have us live with our heads lifted up amid all the sorrows and the pressures that press our chin down there's a hope where we live the child of God who's come to know his life and know his soul and know his covetousness and know who he is says I'm thankful I've been delivered from the guilt and the shame of all that sin by the cross of Christ and I'm thankful there's a small beginning but I want that perfection what I want more than anything else, anything else in this world, I want to be perfect before God. Just as it's stated in the Ten Commandments, as it's laid out in the strict preaching, I want my life to be that life. And the Gospel comes again and says, for that you must wait. For that you must wait patiently, enduring all of the troubles and sorrows of sin, Endure patiently with hope and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ now. For that you must wait for the life to come. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God and Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word, for the truth of Thy Word. We are sorry for our sins. We pray for the grace of the Holy Spirit that we may become more and more conformable to the image, thine image, that perfect, wonderful image that we see in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we long for that perfection that is proposed and is ours in a life to come. Amen.